Hello and welcome to Giving Ventures, a podcast to help you grow your giving and change the world for the better. Each episode, we share innovative charitable efforts leveraging private philanthropy to solve public problems. I'm your host, Peter Lipset, Vice President at Donors Trust. This show is a product of Donors Trust, the oldest and largest donor advised fund focused on helping conservative and libertarian donors of all capacities simplify, protect, and grow their giving. My colleagues and I talk with a lot of groups doing great work. This show lets us share a bit of what we learned with you so you can discover new projects for your own philanthropy. So this is a little bit of a meta episode. We are going to be talking about giving in ways to protect giving. You know, I've spent 17 years with a front row seat to some folks being incredibly generous with their philanthropy. I've seen the wide array of causes that motivate giving and the widely varied ways that people choose to give. I've also seen and read about plenty of giving that I think is, well, maybe less than perfect. Perhaps that's because it supports causes I disagree with, but sometimes it's just because it's giving that's not particularly strategic. For me and many of those whose worldview is centered on a small government and building personal responsibility, our reaction is simply to try to do more good on the smart stuff than those who support the dangerous things. But not everyone sees it this way. Today we're going to hear about efforts to undermine the freedom to give and the ability to do so in a private way. We'll hear about some of the hypocrisy of some of those who support these limitations on giving despite relying on them for their own purposes. More importantly, we're going to hear about some strategic efforts that you can support to challenge these wayward efforts. You know, I always like to keep this podcast focused on the positive. Today, we're going to delve into some things that are kind of negative, but there are silver linings along the way, particularly the encouragement I get knowing there are smart, strong groups diligently working to protect your freedom to give. Optimism also rests with you as someone who can help support those important efforts. So let's get started hearing from our first organization. The Philanthropy Roundtable is a true treasure for donors, particularly those with foundations, who want to use their giving to support a free society. Its membership ranges from large, fully staffed foundations to small family foundations to donors who just leverage donor-advised funds or other tools. The Roundtable's expert staff helps with any number of issues, from governance to identifying charities. Their new president, Elise Westhoff, took the helm a little over a year ago. The roundtable has taken a bold leadership role in the many proposals floating out there that would undermine donor privacy, uh, hurt family foundation giving, and really cut into the value of donor-advised funds. And so joining me today is Elizabeth McGoigan, the Director of Policy at Philanthropy Roundtable, to talk about some of these threats. So Elizabeth, let's go big picture to start. What do you think the broader public sentiment is around philanthropy right now? Well, thanks, Peter. I really appreciate you having me on today. So when it comes to the public sentiment about philanthropy, it's clear that charitable giving and civil society in America remains strong, and the charitable sector is vibrant and thriving. We saw such incredible generosity over the last two years as our community struggled with the COVID-19 pandemic and economic and social crises. There's really no question, individuals, foundations, and charities, they all stepped up to address very real and very urgent needs. Um, the latest Giving USA data illustrates this as well. 2020 was a record-breaking year with more than $471 billion 
given to American charities. Donors with donor-advised funds stepped up giving through these charitable accounts as well. According to a survey of DAF COVID grant-making, donors increased their grant amounts to charities by nearly 30% in the first six months of 2020. This growth rate is nearly double what we saw for the growth in the prior six months and represents a nearly $2 billion increase in funds for charities. So at the same time, we are also hearing an uptick in criticisms of philanthropy, and part of this is a natural follow-on to some of the social conversations happening nationwide about equity and economic disparities. But there is a concerning drumbeat for restraining what makes our civil society so strong and vibrant, which of course is philanthropic freedom. When critics begin to push donors to give to causes that are popular at the moment and start to cancel donors for their giving goals, or to call for more restrictions on how, when, and where donors can voluntarily contribute resources, that's a major threat to this freedom, and we feel it has the potential to chill charitable giving if left unchecked. So our concerns today are really about specific proposals that will ultimately harm charities and the important work they're doing in our communities. We feel like with so much at stake right now for our society, this is not the time to be disincentivizing any charitable giving. Amen to that. And it was a record year last year, and and some signs indicate that this year may keep that pace, which is phenomenal. But you mentioned some specific threats. Let's talk about one of those looming threats out there, the innocently named Accelerating Charitable Efforts Act that is currently in the early stages of the legislative process in Congress. Where did this come from, and what's it aimed to do? Well, going back to the critics of philanthropy I just mentioned, there is a group led by billionaire John Arnold and Boston Law Professor Ray Madoff, that is seeking limits on donor-advised funds and private foundations. In very broad terms, they argue that more resources should be getting to charities faster than they are, and that the government guardrails on the sector are warranted to speed up this giving. So their advocacy has unfortunately led to Senators Angus King and Charles Grassley introducing S-1981. So this bill targets donor-advised funds with a 15-year payout requirement for those who wish to take the tax deduction for their giving. As you know, assets inside donor-advised funds have already been irrevocably dedicated to charitable giving, which is why the deduction can be claimed immediately under current law. However, this bill would impose a 50%, 50 tax on any donor-advised fund assets that are not completely paid out within that 15-year time frame. So this, of course, would take away the freedom of donors to allow assets to appreciate over time, to make larger gifts. It would limit those who wish to give in long-term strategic ways, and it would prevent families with perhaps less assets than John Arnold to pass on a legacy of giving to future generations. And with payout rates easily around 20% each year, there's simply no evidence that any sort of payout mandate is necessary for donor-advised funds. In fact, it could be very counterproductive as it makes this charitable giving vehicle less appealing. It doesn't help that the bill would severely limit also how private foundations may use donor-advised funds. Again, without any data showing that a problem exists here. So I could go on and on. There are other dangerous components of this bill that I'd be happy to go into as well. Yeah, it's it's... There's a lot of crazy stuff in there. The the folks who you mentioned have been on this drumbeat for a while. Uh, and as you say, without a lot of data to back it up, even data 
pointing the other way. I mean, we see it internally at Donors Trust where most of our folks are giving out money pretty quickly. They don't need uh, a government regulation to browbeat them into doing it. That's what they want to do. That's why they want to be charitable in the first place. So so go into some of those other things. I mean, you mentioned there, there's a lot there. There's there's other bills as well. So so what, is, what are some okay, of those other yeah. pieces? Well, this bill, S-1981, it also threatens charitable giving by undermining the right to donor privacy in several different provisions. Uh, it makes it more difficult for charities themselves to meet the public support test. And overall, it simply increases the administrative burdens on charities, the very group the supporters purport to be helping with this legislation. So all of this comes really at a detriment to the people and the causes that these charities support. Now, one other provision we're concerned with that I didn't mention yet um, would irrationally punish family members working for their family foundations. So under current law, federal rules allow all private foundations to count their grant-making expenses toward their mandated qualifying distributions. And this includes, naturally, the salaries of staff members who do the important professional work of fulfilling their foundation's charitable missions. This bill would ban this for working family members with absolutely no evidence that there's any sort of systemic abuse. In fact, research shows that family foundations sometimes have lower administrative expense ratios than private foundations run by non-family staff. And it's already illegal for family foundations to use charitable assets for gratuitous self-enrichment. That's why IRS regulations and stiff penalties are in place to prevent any sort of direct or indirect self-dealing. We know, too, private foundations are already required by law to file detailed and public tax returns on their grant-making, investment fees, trustee names, and staff salaries. So this provision of the bill is really based on an unfounded bias against those with the same last name as the foundation's founders. Yeah, the more you peel back the onion, the more bad provisions there are that affect a lot of people and, and seem to just cut into allowing people to make their own decisions about how they want to give. So so talk to us about what the Philanthropy Roundtable is doing to help donors understand what's going on uh, and also to push back against some of these proposals that could harm philanthropy. One of the things the Philanthropy Roundtable is doing is overall being more vocal on threats to our giving community that would ultimately hurt those most in need. Philanthropy Roundtable is stepping up to address some of these criticisms we've talked about through education efforts with donors, on Capitol Hill and in state legislatures. On the Hill, for example, we're going beyond simple advocacy to really educate members and their staff through meetings, by providing easily digestible materials, and even hosting webinars on fundamental topics like the basics of donor advised funds. It's crucial that those making the policy decisions understand that the consequences of even perhaps well-intentioned proposals that would actually result in fewer charitable dollars for those in need really will operate. And we know that even if threats like S-1981 don't become law this year, they're not going away. And these criticisms are only picking up steam over time. So with the roundtable, we believe that this is the time to speak up about the threats um, and other proposals uh, and how overall the erosion of philanthropic freedom would handcuff the charitable sector. You know, we see all too often assertions against philanthropic freedom are taken at face value. 
So the roundtable is working to take on these assertions and point out where they go wrong, whether it's on our blog in the form of short fact sheets or through original research that the roundtable is publishing. We are working to get the facts out there about the value of freedom and giving to charities and to people on the ground, improving the lives of those in need. Yeah, I mean, you alluded to the fact that at the end of the day, in theory, we're all on the same side in terms of getting money out to the charities that are doing the good work, that are helping civil society, that are allowing for robust debate. It's uh, a path to get there that that's questionable, and we kind of think that there's a lot of uh, paths for people to take already instead of putting up new barriers. And so, so if people who are listening who may not be familiar with what's going on here this is something they want to try to stay on top of. Uh, what do you recommend they do? Is there a good email list they should join, a place to make contributions sure. to help support this effort? What What should they do? I'd say, first of all, for those who want to learn more, I definitely recommend heading over to our website, philanthropyroundtable.org, to view our resources, could sign up for our newsletter, The Roundup, and learn more in general about how to join us in this important effort. Feel free to contact us through the website as well. And I'd say further, on Donor Advised Fund specifically, we're working with sponsors and donors to tell their stories about the causes that they support and how this giving vehicle, among others, helps our communities. So you'll see on our website, we feature stories from charities like Habitat for Humanity and stories from donors that show lawmakers how important Donor Advised Funds are as a giving tool. So for your listeners, we would love to hear from you and help you tell your story. Um, as I said, even if S-1981 doesn't move forward, we know these threats are not going away in the future. And we need to, keep, need to remain vigilant. So we would love to hear from you. My contact info is on the website, and I'd be happy to answer any questions from you or talk about different ways to help these efforts. Excellent. Elizabeth, thank you very much, and appreciate all you and the Philanthropy Roundtable are doing. Great. Thank you. Now we're going to hone in on a particular issue and one that is very close to us at Donors Trust, and that is the issue of donor privacy. There have been a lot of efforts around the country to force charities to reveal more and more information about their donors. And this issue was in the news a little bit over the summer with the Supreme Court and the ruling of uh, against California in the Americans for Prosperity Foundation versus Bonta case, which overturned an effort by the state's attorney generals to require names of top donors to be turned over to the state. That has led to a temporary retreat by California, but also by New York and some other states looking to impose this. But privacy continues to be a big issue. Uh, Some of you listening might know Jennifer Butler as the senior policy advisor with State Policy Network. But in addition to consulting with SPN, she also consults with People United for Privacy, which aims to educate citizens and leaders on the value of donor privacy. So, Jennifer, let's start with the creation of People United for Privacy. What prompted that? Well, first, Peter, thank you so much for having me join you and talk about this important issue. Uh, And People United for Privacy, we actually started as an informal coalition about 10 years ago, just right after the Citizens United case and the decision in the Supreme Court. Uh, And just to remind the listeners about Citizens United, uh, basically the Supreme Court struck down a law that prohibited corporations, and that includes nonprofits and labor unions, from independently voicing their support or their opposition to federal candidates. And and the court rightly ruled that those particular types of laws violate organizations' First Amendment rights. 
So there was this knee-jerk reaction after citizens. There was this concern that a flood of corporate money would be out there drowning out ordinary voices. So so we were seeing kind of this these, these laws being proposed just to expose more information, expose donor information, including donors of nonprofits. Uh, so groups like uh, Institute for Free Speech, American Legislative Exchange Council, AFP, the Network of State-Based Think Tanks, I mean, a slew of different groups, sort of banning together to address what we considered an existential threat. And just out of that informal network, our organization was birthed, People United for Privacy. And, and basically, our goals are pretty simple, right? We, we work across the aisle. We are a large tent. Anybody that believes in privacy, free speech, uh, donor privacy, we will work with you. And we're just educating the public and elected officials just about the importance of, of these basic rights. Now, not everybody has privacy as a big concern. Some people don't think about it at all with when it comes to their giving. So for anybody listening who thinks, well, well, does it really matter if there's a little bit more disclosure? What do you say to them? How do you make the case that there is some inherent value in privacy? That's a, that's a good question, right? Because we live in a world that we're, we're very public about what we do, you know, our day-to-day lives. But the thing is, this is a first principle issue. And I can choose on how public I want to be just with my day-to-day life, with what I give, who I give to. Um, But privacy should be a given. And let me just quickly go back to just how the modern donor privacy movement was was started. And it really began about 60 years ago. And you're very familiar with this case, the NAACP case. It was a groundbreaking free speech case uh, and, and free speech and association at the Supreme Court. And basically, the Supreme Court protected the right for NAACP to keep their supporters private. This was in the midst of just a very, the very nasty civil rights battle, and the state of Alabama was pushing the NAACP to turn over its membership list, its donor list, right, its supporter list. And we know the reason why they wanted those supporters, right? Those individuals would have been targeted for harassment, intimidation, and, and probably even violence. This was a life-or-death issue, for these supporters and for people that were associated with the NAACP. So the U.S. Supreme Court ruled that donations to private organizations like the NAACP, even if they take a position on political issues, that they can remain private so that people's safety is protected. Now, People United for Privacy, we do a lot of research, a lot of messaging research, and we know that concern still is is, is very, very um is happening today. Uh, we, we recently did some polling and we found out that 75% of voters feel that the political climate, today's political climate, per- prevents them from speaking freely. And even more worrisome, 55% believe that trouble or harm is very likely or extremely likely to result from public expression of an opinion or idea. So donor privacy, right, it's, it's not a like to have, it's a must have, just like our freedom to speech and freedom of association. So who's attacking this? I mean, my understanding is this is not just a left issue or a right issue. This is kind of coming from all sides. Where do you see these main threats to donor privacy out there? Yeah, you're 100% right. I mean, this is an issue that spans politi- you know, both sides of the political aisle. Um, and a lot of people listening probably are familiar with the big push on the federal level to expose donors. There's, there's a lot of provisions in these large election bills that Democrats are trying to push that would require additional you know, donor, donor transparency or whatever you want to call it um, on the federal level. 
But, you know, what what happens year after year is we are seeing uh, these threats emerge in states across the country. And there are both in red and blue states, Republicans and Democrats. Um, and so the types of threats we see you know, is pretty standard ones, like California. Every year there's something called the Issue Ads Disclosure Act. And that basically is a broad requirement for, for nonprofits to disclose their donors um, if they take a stance, a public stance on any sort of policy issue or action by the legislature or administrative agencies. We're also seeing more of these, like what I call these top funder ad disclosures. So, you know, if you're an organization, a nonprofit that, that p- publishes or produces an ad, even a short internet ad, uh, you have to announce the names of a top of your uh, few donors or contributors, even if they might have just given a general contribution and didn't necessarily directly support the ad. Um, and one of the emerging threats as uh, kind of the battle of the Supreme Court and who sits on the Supreme Court becomes more contentious is that we're seeing donor disclosures targeted just for organizations that address judicial issues or judicial nominees. Um, but I want to wrap up like your, your question about threats just a little more on a positive note, um, just because I'm actually seeing both sides of the aisle when it comes to nonprofits come out against donor disclosure. So quick story, in New York in 2020, the ex-governor, Governor Cuomo, at his request, inserted a rider into the budget uh, in 2020 requiring donor disclosures from 501c3 charities and 501c4 advocacy nonprofits. And basically in certain circumstances, they would have to expose donor uh, donor information the backlash from nonprofits across the issue spectrum, across you know, the political spectrum, was sharp and severe. And a group of Democratic uh, legislators put together a bill basically reversing that disclosure. And the good news is that uh, earlier this week, that bill was sent to the, the governor for her signature. So, so yes, it does cross political spectrums. Um, and fortunately, the, the pushback does too. And, and to be clear, these are not nonprofits that are somehow getting into electioneering and are saying vote for this candidate vote for that candidate i mean these are what has traditionally been called at least in the universe that i've been in issue education or just you know subject education for citizens right that's a really good point yes i mean we know that political giving there's all sorts of reporting that has to be done. Donors have to be contribute. You know, donors have to be announced. And, um, contrib- uh, contributions to political campaigns have to be disclosed. Yeah, these are issue based ads, right? This would be a situation where uh, a group might say, "Hey, we don't like you know, say no to Trump's border wall or say no to Biden's infrastructure package." Issue based ads. Given how important all this donor privacy stuff is. What's what's motivating those people who are out to get it? I mean, is it envy? Is it uh, political payback? What what's going on? Well, it's it's timely you ask that question. Um, we're we're based here in Virginia, having a discussion right after a very contentious uh, state state race. Actually, there was many state races, political races around the country, and this is the time of year that we we start seeing these threats emerge. Um, and bottom line is that it's individuals that. Um, are wanting to pay back um, nonprofit groups that might have said something against a, a stance that they have taken. And we're seeing it also in red states. We've seen these sorts of proposals and legislation run in Florida and Texas uh, and South Carolina. Um, and they might frame it as a transparency issue, 
But bottom line is this isn't some noble goal for transparency. There is a reason why uh, individuals want these type of lists, just like Alabama wanted the list of NAACP supporters. They want a list to target, an enemy's list to target, whether it's overtly or maybe just subconsciously to try to you know, scare them a little bit. There's a reason why they want a list of names. So you mentioned the pushback in New York. That was a good positive thing. What other opportunities out are out there? What are some of the other positive things around this issue? Well, you started off the session uh, talking about the AFP recent decision on the Supreme Court. There's going to be an opportunity for us to to take that decision and figure out ways to expand upon it. And we're working with a variety of different organizations to figure out like what the next steps are um, on that. So that's exciting. But the other area, too, that's of interest and that People United for Privacy has been working on is actually advancing proactive donor privacy legislation in states. Uh, we've been able to get legislation in 10 states passed thus far, taking a look at 2021, and we're going to expand that that number. Um, but just give you a quick example, right, about how um, interesting parties work together. West Virginia uh, passed donor privacy legislation in 2020, and the face of that effort was the a- ACLU. Um, and in fact, it came out of the Senate un- with unanimous support, unanimous bipartisan support. Um, so it's exciting that we can actually see agreement in states when we bring this locally, people understanding how important it is to protect free speech and the right to freely associate. How can people keep up with all this stuff? These are not uh, issues that are often on the front page of the paper or even in the A section. So where is there a place they can follow the work y'all are doing? Uh, definitely. So I definitely have to plug our website. It is unitedforprivacy.com. Uh, we have Twitter. We have a Facebook page. But probably the best way to get real-time information is sign up for our email updates. We do a good job of giving real-time updates of what's happening on the federal level and also in the state. So, so take a moment to visit that website. Uh, but as I mentioned before, we work with a coalition of other fabulous groups, and they do amazing work. Institute for Free Speech. Uh, Google them. They do a tremendous job doing deep analysis of not only the bills that are being proposed on the federal level, level, but emerging threats around the country. They are an amazing resource. Uh, AFP's great. Philanthropy Roundtable's fantastic. What you all are doing to highlight this issue is absolutely important. Um, But it definitely is one of these issues that when push comes to shove, we are seeing some some interesting bedfellows come together and working on uh, what what should be a common sense thing. But sometimes we forget. And and last thing I just need need to mention is that a lot of my time is spent just educating on a very basic concept that transparency is for government and privacy is for people. So if I could just leave with you know your audience with one takeaway is just to remember that, that transparency is for government and privacy is for people. That's great. Jennifer Butler, People United for Privacy. Appreciate uh, you being here and having that discussion with us. This is great. Great. Thank you so much. We focused largely on legislative threats to philanthropy in this episode, but the threats to giving, particularly to conservative giving, come from everywhere. Conservative and libertarian giving vehicles are labeled as dark money, uh, right-leaning foundations are vilified and used as shorthand for bad and evil. The organizations receiving gifts from any of those automatically have their credibility questioned. It's a problem that I get a nice upfront view to. 
But the Capital Research Center has been around for 37 years, serving as a watchdog on the philanthropic sector, and is one of the few places that dares to question the motivations of particularly liberal and progressive giving, uh, and calls out the hypocrisy we see in the media and with pundits. Scott Walter is the president of Capital Research Center and is with me today. So, Scott, uh, I gave my impression of what you do, but why don't you give us a more eloquent statement about your mission? Well, thanks, Peter. It's great to be here. The, the Capital Research Center looks at who is influencing public policy. And that means that we look at a lot of different types of things. So unions, for instance, or crony capitalists, for instance. But we especially look at the nonprofit world because really that is so important in public policy fights these days. And we look at what I call both ends of it, the end that gives money away donors, foundations, and the like, and the end that gets that money, the grantees. And as you just very well put it, if you are a conservative donor or you're a conservative grantee, you get a lot of scrutiny. There are literally dozens of left-wing entities that do nothing but scour that, uh, all of the facts that can be found about that. They find so much information that I know conservative fundraisers who follow left-wing sites on this to try to find new right-wing donors. So it's a very lopsided playing field where the conservative givers and activists get scrutinized relentlessly and the lefties almost not at all. So we level that playing field by focusing especially on investigating the left deeply and exposing it widely. So a lot of what we've talked about so far in this episode has been around the legislative threats to giving. Uh, and while you would think that some of the big foundations like Ford or Pew or groups like Council on Foundations would also be of like mind and trying to push back against some of these new regulations, in truth, they seem fine letting them happen. What's up with that? Do you? What's your insight on that? Well, that's a that's a great question because, you know, the we see this both in the nonprofit world and even for that matter in election law the left is always watching the process always working the refs always trying to tweak the rules in ways that again will keep that playing field from being level and uh this is especially the case for donors because the left is great at intimidating conservative donors the left's own donors don't get intimidated. They get celebrated. You know, I knew a guy who was writing one book on law schools and Ford Foundation has profoundly affected law schools. So he was studying Ford and he came to believe that there was like a direct line from the Ford Foundation to the front page of the New York Times. If Ford issued a press release on anything, it's front page celebrated news, the New York Times the next day. And so they know the left wing donors like Ford and Pew and Council on Foundations, they know that if they make it a little easier to expose what's supposed to be private giving, they know that their allies will cause pain to conservative donors, whereas they're not going to have that pain. So, I mean, I can give you examples of like a state think tank whose board members have had union thugs on their lawn at five o'clock in the morning harassing them with bullhorns and, and telling every one of their, you know, leafleting all their neighbors about that they're monsters. 
You know what? That doesn't happen to the president of the Ford Foundation. That doesn't happen to George Soros at his estate on Long Island. You all have uncovered so many things, just like what you've been talking about, so many issues. What are some of the biggest ones you're following right now in this philanthropic space? Well, I just mentioned George Soros, but let me say that what we're most proud of is that we are uncovering multiple other Soroses, because as bad as Soros is, there are a lot of them, of other Soroses on the left. And so, for instance, there's a Swiss billionaire, Hans Wies, and uh, we recently got the New York Times to run a a long story, actually two long stories about him. It turns out that he is funding disinformation ops and uh, that try to, you know, create fake news sites that will influence elections. Nobody's even heard of him. Uh, he certainly didn't get much bad press in the New York Times before, but he, he did now. I would say the other big one recently is uh, Mark Zuckerberg and his Zuckbucks. That is to say his massive giving uh, through two nonprofits on the left that where the money ended up in local election offices trying again to monkey with the process of the election in ways that would tilt the playing field uh, to the left. How do you push back on some of this? I mean, do you feel like your challenges to this hypocrisy and, and these legitimate questions that you're raising that we know the other side likes to raise on people who may be friendly to conservative principles, do you feel that those challenges get the airing they deserve? Well, you know, for any conservative, life is an uphill battle it's true. Having said that, we are making tremendous progress in leveling that playing field. Um, I'll give you a great example from just the last like 48 hours. Uh, the Atlantic magazine is a thoroughly liberal magazine, and they had a devastating interview with the head of Arabella Advisors. Now, Arabella Advisors rules over a $730 million a year network of left-wing groups that if they were conservative would be called dark money. And the Atlantic's interview, though, was just savage because she, the, the interviewer repeatedly asked this, this powerful left-wing activist, aren't you just like the people you attack? Aren't you dark money? Aren't you dark money? Aren't you just like them? And that woman ended up retreating and saying, uh, well, actually, we, 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 uh, we are just like the Cokes. Now, that is staggering. And let me brag, there were parts of the questions, these tough questions that were being asked, that literally came out of exactly what we have written about. Uh, so, for instance, you know, using fiscal sponsorship, that's where, you know, you, you, you use a pass-through entity to, to create uh, a new gr activist group. Well, and of course, that means the activist group doesn't have to re reveal board members or finances or whatnot. Well, that, the very words I used in a Wall Street Journal op-ed attacking Arabella Advisors were asked in this interview. So we are definitely making progress on that. And in fact, I know a, a prominent conservative leader who says we don't get nearly as many questions about dark money anymore. And we think that's because even the ignorant mainstream media are starting to realize, well, wait a minute, everybody's doing the same thing and there's a lot more money on the left-hand side. So, you know, the, uh, Capital Research's efforts to shine the light on what's not being paid attention to, or pardon me, what is really being kept in the dark is is really making progress. Yeah, it's not that these folks on the other side are necessarily using things that they shouldn't do. There's just a 
a disconnect in some of the coverage of who is using these charitable tools that are in the tax code that are available to everyone, how they're getting used. And there's a bit of a, a gap in terms of how those are talked about. Is that is that fair to say? It's it, totally fair to say. And I, I should throw in another one like this, which you, I think you may have seen. Sheldon Whitehouse, a Democrat Rhode Island senator, uh, is utterly obsessed about dark money and how evil it is. And But or some months ago, he had a hearing, the whole point of which was to attack conservatives uh, for their dark money uh, related to uh, judicial nominations and the like. And he had a 40, 50-page report about how all the evil things they're doing. Uh, but luckily, I was invited to testify at that hearing, not by him, by somebody else. And I spent my time saying, okay, there appear to be four different definitions of dark money in your report, Senator. Now let me compare the money on left and right for each and every type. And of course, I had no trouble showing much more left-wing money in every, however you care to define the thing. And how many questions did I get from this powerful chairman who could have kept me under those Klieg lights for hours? Zero. Didn't even try to engage. Yeah, it's part of what particularly public policy philanthropy is meant to do is to help make sure that our leaders are held to account. And that is something that has to happen on all sides. So Scott Walter, appreciate you and the Capital Research Center making sure that that happens in the philanthropic space. It's, doing, it's important work. Thanks, Peter. Your philanthropy is just that, yours. I'm disheartened by the voices out there working to diminish individuals' own authority over when and how, why, and to what we give. I think those seeking more regulation misunderstand that the wide diversity in people's charitable giving is the great strength of philanthropy, not its weakness. You know, economists talk about spontaneous order and the invisible hand that guides the market. Well, those same principles apply to philanthropy. Regulation often leads to unintended consequences, just as we saw the 5% minimum giving requirement placed years ago on foundations and how that came to be a ceiling to giving, not a floor. Why would the next regulation be any different? The work of the Philanthropy Roundtable, People United for Privacy, Capital Research Center, and many other groups matter so much. They are helping to clear the path for donors such as you to be able to make your own goals for your giving, to achieve your desired impact. That is truly something to celebrate and support. These ideas of donor freedom, donor privacy, and donor intent form the core of what we think about here at Donors Trust. We have a short guide on how you can protect your own charitable legacy if this is important to you. This is our eight steps to securing your donor intent. I'll put a link to it in the blog page for this show and also at donorstrust.org podcast. Or you can just email me and ask for it. Send an email to tellmemore at donorstrust.org. These groups we heard from today are working to protect philanthropy broadly, but it is on each of us to take steps that will protect our own personal legacy. We'd love to help you with that. One more favor. Will you subscribe to Giving Ventures so you can get all the upcoming episodes right in your feed? You can always listen to them at donorstrust.org slash podcast, but why not have it downloaded straight into your phone? And if you know someone who would appreciate this or any other episode, please point them to the show. Our goal isn't simply to get more people listening to the podcast. We want to see more charitable dollars flow to good causes that advance limited government, personal responsibility, and free enterprise. Help us to do that. And with that, I'll say goodbye for now. Let's talk more soon.